Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, none of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be, since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them, Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Jacob, or I'm the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us in the Bible. We pray that you would help us now to think about it and to respond to it in a way that honors you and changes us to be more and more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I don't think anyone likes to be wrong. So I'm going to take a quick poll. How many of you like being wrong? No, I was right. Nobody likes to be wrong because we, and the reason, there's two reasons. One, it's a little embarrassing. And two, we don't want to have to apologize and go to somebody and say, yeah, I was wrong. (laughs) Right? Um, But have you ever been in a situation where you were wrong and everyone else knew that you were wrong but you? And then you found out later, like you were mispronouncing a word or a place, or something like that. You had just a little bit of the wrong piece of information, and you just stuck with it. And everyone's like, every time you say it, they're like, hmm, you know, but you don't realize what's going on. Has it ever happened to you? It's happened to me, I know, for sure. Well, there's this old story, um, and it's about a city slicker who went to a farmer and asked the farmer why the cow didn't have any horns. Well, the farmer says... uh, uh, you know, he was very patient you know, with this person, and he said, well, cattle can do a lot of damage with their horns, so sometimes, sometimes we saw them off um, so that they you know, don't harm anything or anyone. Or if they're young enough, there's a, there's a paste, a chemical that we can put where their horns grow and stops them from growing altogether. But then there's some breeds, and they never have horns. They just don't grow them. And... Then he paused for a moment and he said, but the reason that this cow doesn't have horns, ma'am, is because it's a horse. (laughs) 
Now, mistaking a horse for a cow would probably leave you feeling just a little bit embarrassed. But the Sadducees had mistaken something that was far more important. They had mistaken about the afterlife. Humanity has always had a fascination with what happens after death. Every religion has something to teach on the subject, and, and most of them are different from one another. Research from the Barner Group shows that 80% of Americans believe in some kind of life after death. And 9% of Americans say that it might exist, but they're not sure. Thankfully, we don't have to be mistaken about whether or not there is life after death. The Bible teaches us clearly that there is, and it, it tells us a lot about it, but it doesn't tell us everything. And even though it shines a pretty bright light into what happens in the next life, there's still some questions about the exact details. But the teachings of Jesus um, have left us as Christians with the ability to have a very strong doctrine about what life is like after death. After all, our entire salvation depends on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, that there is a resurrection. And that the one who died for our sins, who was buried, conquered death so that we might have forgiveness and eternal life in him if we repent and if we believe. The Sadducees were mistaken, but we can be clear this morning because Jesus will set the record straight, both for them and for us, about this particular question concerning the afterlife. Jesus pulls the curtain back for us just enough so that we can catch a glimpse of what it will be like for us after we die. Our, pe- our passage this morning, it starts off with a hypothetical question. A hypothetical question from a group of people called the Sadducees. Now, if you grew up in church, maybe you learned a little song as a child about the Sadducees. Uh, it's actually more about wanting to be a sheep of God. It, and it says, uh, it, the, the punchline is, I just want to be a sheep. And then you make the buying noise like a sheep, right? That's the, that's the punch. You want me to sing it now, don't you? So the part about the Sadducees goes, I don't want to be a Sadducee. I don't want to be a Sadducee. Because they're all sad, you see. I don't want to be a Sadducee. I just want to be a sheep. Ba, 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 ba. Yeah, okay. And it goes on from there. Yeah. (laughs) So they're sad. Sad, you see. And the reason they're sad is because they, well, right here in Mark, tells us that they do not believe in the resurrection. And if we were only reading Mark's gospel, that's all we would know about the Sadducees because this is the only time that they're mentioned. It says the Sadducees come. They don't believe in a resurrection, but they had a question for Jesus. They're a fascinating group. For a lot of reasons, but one reason they're fascinating is because the only information that we have about them comes from the writings of their enemies and people that they tangled with. None of their own writings survived after 70 AD, but even though we don't have any of their own writings, there's still a lot we do know about them. We know that they were a small Jewish sect made up of wealthy aristocrats from priestly families. 
Even though they were small in number, they wielded significant influence and power in politics and the temple because they had control over the high priest. They dominated the Sanhedrin. You can read about that in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. There was a pretty good, good brush up whenever, um, whenever they were... Uh, whenever believers were before them, and they said, I'm only on trial here because I believe in the resurrection. And a huge fight broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about the resurrection because they disagreed. Pharisees thought there was a resurrection, and Sadducees thought that there was not a resurrection. But they were like the Pharisees in the sense that they both liked Herod and Rome. And so they were on good terms with both of them. They believed that the only books of the Bible that were authoritative were the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, often called the Pentateuch. And so from those books, they based all of their doctrine and all of their theology. And they also rejected the oral tradition that had been passed down, which the Pharisees, they were all about the oral tradition. They had a strong sense of human free will. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in demons. They were not expecting the Messiah to come from the line of David. They did not believe the existence of an eternal soul or final judgment or life after death or that there would be a bodily resurrection. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote about them. The doctrine of the Sadducees is this. Souls die with their bodies. But when the center of their power... The temple, that's where they had all their power. When the center of their power was destroyed in 70 AD, their power and influence was destroyed with it. Their fierce rejection of the resurrection was called out in the oral tradition, a book called the Mishnah. One Jewish rabbi wrote this about them. Whoever says that the resurrection of the dead cannot be deduced from the Torah has no part in the age to come. And so his argument was, it's clear, even in those first five books of the law, that there is a resurrection. And if you can't figure that out, then you don't deserve to be part of it anyway. That was his thought. So their belief that there was no resurrection or afterlife is one of the things that they are most well known to have believed or not to have believed. However, that is grammatically correct. Now you may remember that there was a barrage of questions that Jesus has been fielding. This is the third one. Uh, And they've been trying to trip up Jesus ever since chapter 11, verse 27. The chief priests and scribes and the elders came first, and they took their shot questioning Jesus' authority. They said, "Who who gave you the authority to do this? Because they were the ones that actually gave authority to be able to do things like that. And they're like, we didn't give them authority, so who gave them the authority? And Jesus answers them wisely, saying, well, who gave John the Baptist his authority? Because that's the same person that gave me my authority, and it's God. God gave him the authority. Well, that attempt went down in flames. So the Pharisees come along, and the Herodians, they're the second wave. And they take Jesus on in chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And their question is a political question. And they, too, were shot down. They asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus wisely answered them as well. And so next, the third wave is the Sadducees. And they come with this trick question for Jesus. 
Of course, like the other two groups, they have a question for a man that they call teacher, but they have no desire to actually learn from him. The whole question is actually dripping with mockery. Because, remember, they don't believe, they don't believe in the resurrection. They only trusted the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, done. That's all that they had. That's all that they wanted to look to. So it should not come as a surprise to us that the question that they have comes from and is, in quote, and is quoted by them uh, from these books, these first five books. Now allow me to leave the text for just a moment and point out a quick lesson. It's not the main lesson of this text. It might not even be a minor lesson of this text, but it's an important lesson. These guys were, they were quoting the Bible. They were quoting the Bible, but what they were doing when they were quoting the Bible was trying to twist the scriptures to fit what they already believed. They believed something, so they read into whatever text they were reading what they already believed instead of reading the text and allowing the text to inform their belief. There's a big difference there. A big difference. And you might run into people in this world who come to you with their Bible open like the Sadducees, and they try and trip you up and try and point you to some position that they hold, and they're using Scriptures to try and support that position, but that position isn't in that text, or really maybe even in any text of the Bible. And we see this sometimes. I'm sure we've all heard, I know I've heard sermons, I've probably preached sermons before too, Lord forgive me, where I wasn't preaching what the text was actually teaching. I was preaching my thought on it, or some other thought that I was trying to use that text to prove, but that text really had nothing to do with what I was trying to say. So we've got to be cautious. We've got to be careful and not let a mistaken spin on Scripture try and trip us up. All right? Now, back to the passage. The question that they are referencing when they say, Moses wrote for us, they're talking about Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. Let me read, because it's a passage, I'm going to read it here in just a second. The passage deals with what has been come, become known as the laws concerning leveret marriage. All right, And it says this, When brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside of the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son that she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law, she is to go to the elders at the city gate and say, My brother-in-law refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He isn't willing to perform the duty of a brother-in-law for me. The elders of the city will summon him and speak with him. If he persists, saying, I don't want to marry her, then his sister-in-law will go up to him in the sight of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. Then she will declare, This is what is done to a man who will not build up his brother's house. And his family name in Israel will be, the house of the man whose sandal was removed. 
Now that sounds like a really long last name, Bill of the house of the man whose sandal was removed, but that's what he's going to be called now in all of Israel. He's going to be known for his, his disobedience to, to keeping his brother's name going in Israel. See, the heart of the issue here is to make sure that when a man dies, that his family name and the property associated with that, his property rights, are retained for that man without, who was who unable to produce an heir. And as a side note, if you go to Ruth and you read the very last chapter of Ruth, you'll find uh, this law is at work and you'll read about the sandal and you'll know what's going on. Um, but don't do that now. That's for later. <laughs> now we need to talk about the Sadducees because they took this teaching and they created what is called in, uh, in moderated debate, it's called a reductio ad absurdum argument. And basically what that is, it's the kind of argument that takes something that is true and they reduce it to a level that's just crazy, completely ridiculous. And then they take that ridiculous conclusion and they bring it back and try and refute the original truth with the crazy truth, showing how if this were true, then this would be mayhem. This would be nuts. So in their scenario, they have a man who marries a woman, and that man dies. And he has seven brothers. And you know what happens. Each one marries the woman, and then they die, and none of them leave an heir for the first brother. And then she dies, which at that point must have been a great relief after picking up seven different husbands' socks for all those years. And in verse 23, they say, this is the Sadducees, they say, in the resurrection when they rise, and at this point they were probably trying to keep their laughter to themselves. They're trying to keep it in. Because this case is so ridiculous, it was actually well known uh, to be a joke that the Sadducees would use when they wanted to poke at the Pharisees. And so they would go, well, what about this, you know, widow of seven, you know, the seven times widow? And so they would make fun of the Pharisees because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and they didn't. So, so Jesus... (laughs) When, when they rise, you know, at the, resur- at the resurrection, when they rise, right, guys? When they rise, who's, whose wife is she going to be? Because, you know, she's had seven husbands. They're probably like, oh, man, he's, you know, he's, that's, what the, that's what they're doing here, right? It's a ridiculous thing because they think, gotcha. There can't be a resurrection because if there was a resurrection, it would be total madness in heaven, Because everyone would be running around trying to find out who's married to who. The whole idea is absurd. And that's what they're saying. And they're laughing under their breath the whole way. And they believe the resurrection is ridiculous. Now, people ask us similar questions today to try and gitch us or gotch us or however you'd say that. They ask silly questions like, Well, you know, if we take Genesis, then we have to ask, you know, like, who did Cain marry? Or Moses wrote in the third person. 
and then he died. Who finished his book? Because there's stuff after he died. Like these are the questions that are going to, you know, cause Christianity to crumble into the dust, right? They're ridiculous questions. But they're the questions that people use to try and trick us into saying that our faith is ridiculous. Their questions are ridiculous. That's what's ridiculous. So their conclusion is the resurrection is going to be chaos. So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And before Jesus answers the question, let me just let you know what the Pharisees thought. The Pharisees taught that because they believed in the resurrection, they believed that she would belong to her first husband. But this question is coming from people who don't believe in the resurrection, and it's a loaded question. The question is designed to try and set the law of God up, the truth of God's word against whatever these guys believed, however they came to believe it. Now the rest of the Jews, most of the rest of the Jews believed all of the Old Testament was Scripture. And not only the first five books. And so as they read through the rest of the Old Testament, the the truth of the resurrection became a foundational belief for them. In fact, it became such a foundational belief that by the time of Jesus, it is mentioned in some of the benedictions and the things that would be said at funeral services and cemeteries. For instance, a benediction that was often given was, Blessed be thou, O Lord, who raises the dead. Or in or at the cemetery they would say, He who caused you to arise, blessed be um, he will cause you to arise. Blessed be he who keeps his word and raises the dead. So by the time of Jesus, they had a pretty strong, most people had a pretty strong view that there would be a resurrection, that God, that there would be a resurrection and that we'd be with God for all of eternity. But there was still this group of Pharisees and, and they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that the rest of the Old Testament was really God's word. And they couldn't see anywhere in the first five books that taught about a resurrection. And so with great glee, they spring the punchline designed to stump the rabbi. And they think that they have him, but they're headed for a big disappointment. Because Jesus answers, uh, uh, giving them the answer for the perfect plan for heaven. It begins with, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And it ends with, you are badly mistaken. Uh, Ma'am, that cow is a horse, right? He just flat out tells them they're wrong. You're wrong. You don't know. You don't understand. You don't know how to interpret the scriptures. And Jesus points out their mistakes. And it's not just a mistake. They're badly mistaken. And the two mistakes they made are about the scriptures and also about the power of God. First, he says they're mistaken about the scriptures. And I I really love verse 26 because I like to think that even though Jesus is the Son of God and he's holy and reverent, that he also is a little bit like me and a little bit sarcastic. And I get a little bit of a sarcastic tone in verse 26 where Jesus says, Haven't you read the book of Moses? Haven't you read the book of Moses? 
Of course they've read the book of Moses. That's all they believe, right? They've read it. They have understood it. Or they've, you know, they, maybe they don't completely understand it because Jesus says that they didn't. But that's the only book they believe. Of course they've read it. It's where everything, all their theology, all their doctrine, everything comes from. And Jesus goes, haven't you read the book of Moses? But even though I think it comes off a little sarcastic because that's what I want it to be, Jesus is actually doing something really important here. He's taking them to the only place where he could teach them, the only place where they might even be convinced. If he'd gone to Isaiah or Jeremiah, if he'd gone to Daniel, or if he'd gone to the Psalms, they wouldn't have listened. They'd go, oh, those are nice, but they didn't believe that that was the word of God. And so he takes them, he points them to the only place that they would believe from, and that's the five books of Moses. And he says, when God was speaking to Moses at the burning bush, that's from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus adds, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's saying it's in the present tense, guys. Don't, don't you know your Hebrew grammar? It's present tense. It's not, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob, but I am the God. I am the God right now of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. You all think they're dead and buried in the desert somewhere. But God is still their God. He still has a relationship with all three of them. And with this answer, Jesus pulls the rug right out from underneath of the Sadducees' feet. Because these are the guys who claim to believe in the books of Moses, yet they missed this all-important point. Jesus points out the flaw in their theology by using a very unsuspecting, often overlooked passage in Exodus. If they had their thinking caps on, they would have seen the resurrection is taught in Moses. But because they were so focused on reading the Bible to support their own false beliefs, they missed that in some sense, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were still alive and still in fellowship with God in heaven. And we believe that today, that that's where Christians go when they die in the Lord. That they go and be with Jesus. What the Sadducees claim to know best the book of Moses, they actually know the least. They were mistaken. Badly mistaken. They were wrong. Also, if they would have seen that all the rest of the Old Testament was also the word of God, they could have seen clearly that there's a resurrection and an afterlife. Just a few. Job 14, 14 through 15. Job 19, 25 through 27. Psalm 16, Psalm 23. Psalm 49, Psalm 73, Isaiah 25, Isaiah 26. Should I go on? (laughs) Over and over again in the Old Testament, the afterlife is mentioned. The resurrection is promised. And while there's some mystery in the Old Testament about the exact nature of all of that, it's still promised there. But at the foundation of their question lies an assumption. And that assumption is that the resurrection life will be the same as life as we know it now. Except for them, it would be chaos because of one bride for seven brothers. 
However, in verse 25, Jesus tells us the resurrection world to come is different than the world that we currently live in. Some things will be the same. I'm going to be me and you will still be you. Our our personalities and the things that make us us will be there. But there are many things that will also be very different. For instance, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, it calls it the new heaven and the new earth because the first heaven and first earth have passed away. It's new. It's not this same old earth. It'll be a new earth, one that has never been marred by sin or cursed because of it. And so Jesus says in verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. There are a few questions that this saying of Jesus brings up. I'm going to try and answer them. First, Jesus is not saying that we or they will become angels in heaven. It's a popular belief um, in our world today that when someone dies, they become an angel. They get their wings and sing in the heavenly choir. But the Bible doesn't actually teach that. The Bible doesn't say that people become angels. In fact, what it does say instead is that we'll be like the angels which means that if we're like angels, that we're not angels, because there's two different things there. Otherwise, it would say, you are angels, but it says we're going to be like the angels. So we've got to find out what it means to be like an angel. We're going to do that here in just a minute. But John, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, tells us that we'll also be like Christ. We'll have a resurrected body, a new imperishable body. So we're going to be like the angels and like Christ. We'll come back to that. Remember, Jesus is answering a question about the sevenfold widow. So he says that believers will be like the angels in that they neither marry nor are given in marriage. You see, the problem with their question was that they were mistakenly believing that the world of the resurrection would be the same as the current world and that the relationships of this world would just carry on into the next. But it will be a whole new world with a whole new kind of life. And this also dismantles the idea that heaven for each person will be just whatever they liked doing here on earth. So if you liked hunting on earth, then heaven for you is just a big forest with a gun that has unlimited ammo, like video games. Or if you like to to knit, that heaven is just a big yarn room and you have you know magic knitting needles that I don't know (laughs) it's not that at all though that's not what this is teaching us and nowhere in the Bible does it teach us that so back to our question about marriage Jesus is saying that our relationships on earth are not going to continue exactly like they are here into heaven but instead we will enjoy relationships that are like the angels. And their relationships with one another and their relationship in heaven is centered on God and his worship and our fellowship around that. And I realize that this is a hard saying of Jesus because we deeply love our family members and we want to have the same kind of relationship with them there that we do here. But Jesus says 
that it won't be like that. He says there's not going to be any marriage in heaven. So let me try and explain this a little bit more. First, let's try and answer this question. What is the purpose of marriage? Well, life on earth is temporary, and one day we will all face our end. And so God gave humans the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so, so one of the purposes of marriage, when God gave Eve to Adam, was to populate the earth and to continue on the line of humanity. But heavenly life is eternal, so there's no place and no need for procreation because the only people that are in heaven are those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And only those people who put their faith and trust in Christ are in heaven, and nobody will be born in heaven that way. So there's no need for that. But there's a second aspect, and it's probably the most important one. Marriage is actually given to us not to fill some need in our life and not only to multiply and fill the earth, but it was given to us to teach us about the relationship between Christ and his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, Paul goes into great detail about how, um, how husbands are supposed to love their wives and sacrifice and how the wives are supposed to submit to and respect their husbands. And he goes on and, and, he, and he talks about great, in great detail about what the husband and the wife are supposed to be for one another. And then he ends and he says, I know it sounds like I've been talking about marriage, but I've really been describing the mystery between Christ and the church. And so marriage is given to us to display for us on earth something about the relationship between Christ and his people. Also, the church has been called the bride of Christ. So we will not need marriage because we'll have no need to procreate. And we will not be married to others because we will be married instead to Christ. We are his bride. He is our groom. One final point, and that is that in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. And I believe that this means that when I arrive in heaven, I will no longer be a grandson or an uncle, I won't be a cousin, a nephew, I won't be a husband, and if God gives us children, I won't be a father in heaven. You see, this woman that's in question, she's not just going to be somebody's seventh wife forever and ever, all through eternity. Instead, all those who are in Christ are brothers and sisters. Children of God. And I think that that is what Jesus is trying to say here. That our relationship changes and, and we're children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. I love all the relationships that I have on earth right now. Friends and family. But as a Christian, I'm part of a larger family. The family of God. And while I would love to spend eternity with my biological family, I will instead get to spend eternity with my blood relatives who are made family by the blood of Christ. You know, back in the day, way back in the day, 
at church, we would call one another brother and sister, brother Phil, sister Susan. And it was to remind us that, that we were family, brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no, God has children, not great-grandchildren. He doesn't have nieces and nephews in the faith. He has children. And if we're all his children, then we're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so I'll get to spend all of eternity with my family, including my sister in Christ, Ashley, who's my wife here, and my sister there. The great Puritan preacher and pastor and missionary Jonathan Edwards says it so well, in heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasure of the most exquisite kind, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. Or, if we were going to say it another way, in heaven, no Christian will be deprived or left unsatisfied. God will fulfill all of our needs, all of them. And our relationship with God and our new relationship with our family is going to provide all the satisfaction, all the happiness, and all the joy that we need for all of eternity. And all the relationships that we have here on earth, no matter how wonderful they are, no matter how incredible they are, no matter how close they are, are going to seem insignificant in comparison. At the resurrection, there will be great joy because our spiritual family will be brought together to live with one another for all of eternity. Now, in this passage, Jesus doesn't answer all of our questions. And I have a lot, actually, about the afterlife. A lot of questions like, is there going to be gender in heaven? doesn't really address that here. Or if somebody dies as an infant or when they're 80, will they look that way for all of eternity? Will we know the people on earth... In heaven, will we only know the people that we knew on earth, or will we know everybody? Or are we going to constantly be introducing ourselves you know, to the other people that are there? Hey, I'm Chris. I uh, you know, lived in Versailles for a while. Uh, you know. Or are we just going to know everyone? You know, is there going to be name tags? I don't know. It doesn't say. I've got a lot more questions, and some of them are even more interesting than those. And I have my thoughts about what might be the case, but I don't know for sure. And I try not to speak more than what... We're talking about this in Sunday school. I try not to speak more than what the Bible actually says, especially when we're dealing with just one text. But I don't know for sure. But even though I may not be able to find answers to all my questions, I do know that there will be a resurrection. And that in that resurrection, there will be great joy. Because God's family will be rounded up and spend all of eternity with one another in heaven. And it'll be incredible. It'll be incredible. The Pharisees got it wrong. Or the Sadducees, sorry. The Sadducees got it wrong. They were mistaken. They were badly mistaken. Because they thought that heaven was going to be just earth 2.0. But it's going to be a new earth. It's going to be earth 10,000. Right? It's going to be incredible. And... And the curse of sin and death will be gone. The earth won't have the curse of sinful man on it. It'll be an incredibly new thing. And we'll have an incredibly new relationship. And we'll be what we know God to be now. We'll fully know. Because we'll be able to see him face to face. It's going to be an incredible thing. You know, the resurrection 
which is really kind of the central focus of this text. It's central to what we believe as Christians. Paul argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we're fools. Our faith is worthless and we're still in our sins. We're not forgiven. We're still under judgment. But we believe all who love the Lord, who love Jesus, who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who have been brought into union with Christ, who have received the spirit of adoption, we believe that when they die, their souls go immediately into the presence of Christ. And at the day of resurrection, their bodies will rise to be reunited with their souls. And in some way, and I, don't, I can't exactly describe it or can't tell you how, but in some way, there is going to be a physical resurrection of the body that will continue to have our personality and people will be able to recognize that it is us. But at the same time, our bodies will be different because they won't be weighed down by sin and decay and death. Life in heaven is going to be the best possible life that we can have because it's a life that's spent with God forever. Now the media and movies and television shows and cartoons and even our own imaginations have tried to dream up what heaven will be like. They show heaven as maybe someone sitting on a cloud playing a harp. And I remember watching that when I was a kid because that's like every cartoon, right? The, you know, the cat dies and it goes up and sits on a cloud and plays a harp. And I thought to myself when I was a kid, do I need to start taking harp lessons? Like, if that's what heaven is like, I better start now because it's going to be tough, right? Or other people think that heaven is just a place that's designed for their own personal pleasure and that they get to pick what they do and all of that. But they're mistaken, just like the Sadducees. You see, the world is asking what life is like after this life. They want to know, and so they're creating all kinds of things that they think it will be like. But we have the answer, and we know. We know that there will be a resurrection, and that there will be a judgment, and that people will stand before God to give an answer for their sins. But we also know that there's hope, and that there can be joy at the resurrection, because those who have placed their faith and hope and trust, those who have repented and believed, will be forgiven and get to spend eternity with God forever. The world is asking what the afterlife is going to be like. We have to answer them. If we know, or if we want to know what heaven is going to be like, we don't need to look to the movies. Actually, I'm, I'm, you know, we're talking about what we were afraid of in Sunday school. I should have said, I'm afraid that people have gotten more of their theology about heaven from movies than they do the actual Bible. But that's where we need to go to find out what heaven's going to be like, what the afterlife is going to be like. Not just heaven, but also hell. The Bible teaches a lot about hell and the punishment that comes from those who reject Christ. But yet, with all we can know about heaven from the Bible, here's what Paul writes about it. And there's a lot that we can know from the Bible, but here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. 
even the incredible things that we imagine about heaven pale in comparison to what it will actually be like. It will be so much better. So much better. That we can't even comprehend it. We can't even wrap our minds around it. But the main reason that the life to come is going to be incredible is because for those who have those who have been saved, had their sins forgiven, they, the greatest relationship that they have on earth will be continued for all of eternity. And that's the relationship that we have with God. What we only know partially now, we'll know fully. And it will be fulfilling and incredible and satisfying. But the only way that we can have that kind of relationship is if we start it now. We have to put our hope and trust in Christ alone. The Bible teaches that he came to earth. It was God. He came to earth in the form of Christ. We celebrate it this time of the year as Christmas. That God came in the flesh in the form of the baby Jesus. And that he lived a sinless life. And that on the cross, he didn't die for his own sins because he didn't have them. But he died for our sins. He took our place. We deserve to be nailed to that cross, but He took our place on it. And then He gave us what we didn't deserve. We, we deserved the death, but instead He gave us His righteousness and His life, eternal life. And if we put our hope and trust in Him, if we repent, and if we believe, we can be forgiven. First John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you confess to him this morning, if you call out on his name, if you repent and believe, he'll forgive you. And he'll give you eternal life. And it's the best possible life that you can have now. And it's a life that lasts forever. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.